We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. friends we made along the way. No, really. Like, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it's about. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name's Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, look, we have each other. We have each other. And maybe that's really what this has always been about, each other. Because the football, eh, overrated if you ask me. Um, I, I think we can probably all agree that uh, having each other, having the community, having this this chance to engage in whatever this is, what we're doing is is wonderful. And then, you know, the football comes around not so much. So Friday, we did a, a pre-match live stream. What a joy that was. Fun. People in the chat joking around. We're predicting wins. We're talking about who the players of the season are going to be. We're all laughing. We're smiling. We're playing the Clive video. We're playing Paul's new video that, that Eddie Longbridge made. It was just like a drawing of some toothpaste and a silly song and a stick figure. It's great. Everybody's great. And then, you know, we all sign off that. Talk to you after the game. And then the game happens. And you're like, what is this shit? <laughs> so, I don't know, man. We're, we're going to get through this together one way or the other. The good news is it gets much easier from here with Chelsea and City next. So, we're going to have a lot of fun today uh, talking about the fall of our beautiful club. Now, I, I, we're going we're gonna to try to keep it as light as we can, but these are serious times. So, I hope that what everybody can do is recognize that we all engage with hard times differently. Uh, Paul and I, on the Instant Reaction pod, you know, and Clive, Paul very much expressed different kinds of emotions than, than the rest of us were feeling. And it really is a reminder to me that hardship brings out different aspects of our personality and of our analysis. So I look forward to that. I think it's that rich tapestry that makes us special. Here with me now is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo! And Clive, you can find him on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. And Tim, you can find him on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. It's funny because in the this little chat window we have, it, it says the Tim. And uh, because I will read anything that's in the prompter, I almost said the Tim uh, because I am literally just like Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. It so, is a rebrand. New season, new brand. So, yeah. New brand. The Tim, the Smith, the shit we watched on Friday night. I'm going to start with you, Tim, just for a second. And then we're going to get to a, a sort of special segment that we've carved out today uh, just for the circumstances that we're confronted with. But you did go to the game. And it's, yep. you know... One of the things Paul expressed in the instant reaction pod that I think you know some people couldn't necessarily connect with was that was 
fecking brilliant, as he said, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's football. It's back. And I understand that most of us weren't feeling that way at full time. But I understand the sentiment of, like, the songs and the the tribalism and the the small club fans cheering on their team to an improbable victory and the big club fans wanting to crush their hopes and the outrage with the refereeing decisions and just the whole pantomime of football at least felt back. Um, not so sure I loved like all the TV commentators and everybody in the world of football celebrating along with Brentford while our club circles a drain. That's another story. So for but you, people being back, fucking cared. That's, yeah, they cared. They cared and it mattered and it felt like football yeah. um, in all the wrong ways in some ways, but in all the right ways in others. So two super quick questions for you about going one, mm. As painful as things feel at the club right now, did it rekindle club football for you? And then two, online sentiment doesn't sometimes reflect real sentiment. How much frustration is there in the away supporters uh, at this point? So you can handle those in whichever order you see fit, the Tim. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So um, did it rekindle club football? Absolutely it did. Yes, 100%. Um, You know, took a nice half day off, got there at half past two in the afternoon, so well before kickoff. Had some beers with some people that uh, most of which I mean I have seen because we have had some games um, and at the Emirates, but and you know I went to England Denmark which was nearly full, um, but the, this this was this was kind of different and an away day in London at the only ground I think I'd not been to in the top two divisions because it only opened during the pandemic, so it was a new ground for absolutely everybody. Lovely optimism around it, you know, in a pub before the game obviously full of Brentford fans as well and they're feeling very optimistic and yeah it, it felt great and it felt great to be back in a stadium again and particularly in in an away game because been to a couple of home games like reduced capacity and a friendly but this this was much much different um coming to an away game and it's it's much more um it's much more tight-knit because it's the same people basically that go to all the away games so seeing the same faces and and you know seeing people that not seen that you know the, the last away game that we went to was Portsmouth in the FA Cup in March 2020 which is just an absolute age ago now so yes it absolutely did um it 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 and it even the thing is as well it makes the defeat easier to take when you can just go and have a beer afterwards yeah yeah, I wish um, I could have said the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you kind of get it all off your chest. And then, you know, I got lost on the way back to the station and missed the last train. So I had to get an Uber home and all of that. And I just thought, this is wonderful. This is this is what I missed rather than just like sitting at home and stewing over the defeat. As Waiting for the- to get on the instant reaction pod. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and as for the um, the atmosphere in the away end, it actually wasn't that bad, to be honest. I mean, I say that. We had an argument with a guy behind us because he was screaming the word cunt in our ears. Um, yeah. uh, uh, absolute, uh, um, a lot of decibels, a lot of times. And this was at nil-nil. And, um, and it was just like, like, mate, like, please, you know, just like tone it down a little bit. I'm not asking you, like, we're not asking you to be happy here, I promise I wasn't at the jig. game, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have to like dance a jig or anything. That's not what we're saying. But can you please stop, stop screaming in our ears? But, but I mean, other than that, in general, it was actually all right, to be honest. And I think that's just because of the novelty of football being back. Um, I, I'm not sure how long that will hold for, if you know what I mean. Like, I think if that had happened, let's say that happens at Burnley away next month. I think it might be quite different, to be honest. For for this game, I, th- I think like 
the good vibes were there. Um, so we're not at Stoke train platform level yet, but we're... No, no, no. But like I said, I, I think that's largely the novelty of it all coming back. And also because I think no one's really got anything against Brentford. Um, Clive, I, I love the sounds going on in the background, but you're not on mute. So I'm, I'm hearing some some throat clearing, some some nasal <laughs> congestion, some drink pouring. It's all it's all good. This is this is a safe space for everyone. Sorry, Tim. Um, Sorry. So, so la- last point then. Um, you know, I, I don't know much about ticket sales for Arsenal because it's not something I've experienced. I'm, I'm reading a lot of places that Chelsea's on general sale, friends and family, um, that that's a game that would have been sold out, you know, months or years in advance ahead uh, in the past. How much of that is apathy and how much of that, in your view, is just people still nervous about COVID and not sure they want to be at a stadium? A little bit of both. A little bit of apathy. I will say that usually um, the first couple of home games don't tend to sell very quickly because it's a time when people are on holidays, school holidays, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that has always happened, um, to mm. be honest. Um, and also because of like the uncertainty with restrictions and things like that, the tickets have gone on sale quite short notice. Same with like the Brentford away tickets went on sale 10 days before the game. Like, you know, clubs were really waiting to see, you know, that things were definitely going to be at full capacity. So there hasn't been like the big lead in either. But nevertheless, um, there, there absolutely is. Like, uh, like, there's a lot of tickets unsold at the moment. It's about six, seven thousand um, yeah. at the moment, and that's that's a lot more than usual. So that that has to be a level of apathy. I, yeah, I, that, I got yeah. my ticket today, and all the lower tiers have gone. Um, upper tiers over the clock end. Oh, there's a few there, but in the North Bank, all the tickets are gone. There's just onesies. There. So like that was this this would have been gone like months ago, right? I, w- I would like, never get a, an A game like this normally. I'd have to put in a favour. Do you know what I mean? For an A game. Yeah. Um I, I tend to go to the lower games, you know, just off my membership I've got and my son's membership. So the fact I can get to a Chelsea game a week before, uh, I think a little bit of indication there, but I, I agree with him there. There's a it's a difficult time of year. Lots of people are away as well. So yeah. Well, all right. So let's get into this new segment that we're going to do for this pod. And it's called your one big thing. And the reason we're doing this is I wanted a container for each of us to get a chance to say that thing that's on our mind right now about Arsenal and about this situation that may not fit tightly into a discussion about the game and the news, right? There's news. There's the Obalaka thing. There's how the game played out. There's some of the performances. There's Joe Willickley. There's news. But but this feels like a big moment. And I think there's a lot of people that want to contextualize that moment in a way beyond just the the average match analysis. So this gives us a chance to sort of have a free swim at the start to get that one big thing off your mind. So Clive, I will start with you. As we go into this week ahead of the Chelsea game, we've all, look, we've lost our opening game. It happens. You've said in the past, we were always set up to lose this game, pulled it forward Friday night, players missing, Brentford's new stadium. They're all fired up, but this feels different. The way the squad is put together right now, the situation around the club, the moment we find ourselves in, it does feel, if not dire, then urgent. So I will ask you, what is your one big thing on your mind about Arsenal right now? Yeah, well, one big thing is, I'll sort of dread this podcast because there's so many things in my mind that I didn't know where to go with it, really. So um, I'm trying to be sensible and say, look, the season doesn't really start to the window shut. But do I trust the window? Um, look, my one big thing about this game is... We looked unprepared for it. And I don't mind losing football matches, 
but I don't like losing football matches when we get pushed around and, and beat up. And that's for those that have followed me or listened to me for a long time, I don't like losing the fight. I, I, I really don't. I, I hate being portrayed as that team that's easily bullied, moved around, people that get at, weak. I don't like it, whether it's true or not, whether we got absentees or not. I don't like it. I'm brought up in an era when that doesn't happen. You make sure it doesn't happen. And when I see it happen, I have to fight myself not to overreact to that and say that football's not always like this. But you must have something in your team which allows you to fight the fight as well as play the nice football. And I and I don't think we recruit in a way that respects the fundamentals of the game, which is the contest of the game, which allows you to put your superior technical ability on top of a team. There's something that underpins that, and that is the contest. That is the winning of duels. You've heard this, you guys have heard this a thousand times, but it's important, and you see it when it's important. Because when a team smells that vulnerability in you, they go for you. And I felt we lost the critical moments, the critical duels. And so now we're into a situation where we have a, how are we recruiting? And do other people see this as a problem? And what I see in our recruitment is I see a continuation of things which we already have weaknesses against. And I'm not sure people see this as a problem. And until we understand that football is a a contest, we will not be able to move forward, in my opinion, with any sort of foundation and stability. Mm. Well, that's cheered me up then. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't disagree with any word of that. I think there's a lot about this game that we'll, we'll get into. I, I definitely think we're also in a position where we are grasping for excuses way, way more than we should they're there. They're there for every club. Arsenal are this weird club lately, though, where as long as there's an excuse for failure, the failure somehow doesn't count. Well, this player wasn't available, or you know, we couldn't play our formation because this left back wasn't available, or you know, this this refereeing decision didn't go our way. And we live in this weird world right now where we act like other clubs are always operating in optimal conditions and we're not. And I think we need to wake up pretty quickly and realize all clubs are operating at suboptimal conditions. All right, sure, someone like City that has two 11s that could win the league, that's one thing. But the idea that just because some things aren't going our way means failure is excusable, that's a weird mindset for me. Paul, what is your one big thing going through your mind about Arsenal right now? Um, look, this is really tough because it depends on which hour you ask me. But you asked me this hour, and I'm still on an edu um, uh, phase of of analyzing where we're at. We're going to go through a very rough uh, few weeks coming up here where the manager is going to be totally in the spotlight and the performances of the team are. And we need a sandwich between the supporters, two pieces of bread between the salami that is the manager and the team. And on one side of it should be us, the supporters giving our feedback, signaling, and on the other side should be a director of football that we all have a level of confidence in so that when he tells us it's good, the manager's good, we're on the right track, we actually believe him. Otherwise, you have chaos. And my concern is if performances don't pick up very, very quickly, we're going to have chaos without clarity as to where the real problem is. And we need resolution. And 
I know I went on a tear last night on the Twitters about Edu barbecuing while Rome burned. Like this, if if he thinks the window is going great, and now I know it's his wife's Instagram account and it's just him barbecuing and it's just the four Instagram pictures so far over the last couple of weeks. But talk about not, somebody said not reading the room. I think he he's mowing down the room with the semi-automatic. Um, like, I get it. It's just some photos on Instagram. But I know what I'd do if I was the director of football and the window was in the state it is and we just lost at Brentford. I'd say, you know what, darling, can we leave that till after September 1st? I might even leave my vacation till after September 1st or at least keep it quietish. Um, like if he doesn't have a shitload of work to do to get players out the door, because the only reason apparently we didn't go for Tammy Abrahams, who we wanted, was because we still didn't get rid of the striker that we tried to get rid of the previous window by getting him a good move. Now, maybe there was no way to get those moves done, but one of the signals you you send that you are serious is when you're a public-facing person and your wife knows you are, you, you know, the first time may be a mistake. The second time, by the fourth time, I'm sorry, I'm going with, um, is there a signal here? Now, maybe there isn't a signal here, but it, it did poke me up the nose to say, why don't I know that I can trust my director of football? And if there's a likelihood we're going to be doing some uh, deep, deep surgery on our executive team, that's where I'd like to start. Go out and get, we have 200 million in wages we have a hundred million in each direction out and in each window making decisions in terms of players bought and sold there's 400 million that a director of football impacts every year go out and spend a few million on the best goddamned director of football on the planet so this director so that the fans and the director are either size of the manager and feedback will happen and we will make good decisions Mm. You feeling you feeling good about things? <laughs> about yeah. the, about, okay. Um, yeah, I, I I gotta be honest, right? I think there are a lot of people who don't like the suggestion that optics matter. I don't think we'll go into it in depth here. I think the one thing no one should fool themselves about is that someone who was a player for the Invincibles, who knows the heat and the passion of Arsenal support, who has been in the spotlight, who has a very public facing job that pays him millions and millions and is going not great. Do not fool yourself into thinking that that person is not aware of the impact of social media. Now, he may be of the mind that, like, it's no one's business but my own. It's no one's business but my wife's, and I'm not going to trouble myself with that reaction. And if that is his position, then honestly, God bless him, because I think there is too much toxicity on social media, and people shouldn't have to govern their behavior based on that. But at a minimum, I would suggest that people know. People know. Um, you know, and that that you can take that either way. Tim, what is the one big thing on your mind about Arsenal at the moment? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll try and be brief. I, I think that Arteta is slowly getting sucked into the Arsenal washing machine to, to nick a place. Hey, 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 taps Clive's, <laughs> Clive's mug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so here's the thing that I was thinking watching the game on um, on Friday, and I think Lewis Ambrose really brought it out in his uh, tactics piece where he, he spoke about um, the kind of the lack of synergy with 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 Kieran Tierney, not from Kieran Tierney, with him, and the way that um, you know, for example, Martinelli and Balogun didn't know how to make the right runs and things like that. 
And I, I think the overarching problem Arteta has is he's trying to do the opposite to what Emery did, where Emery tried to be flexible and to adapt to the players that he had and it didn't work. So Arteta's come in and he's thinking, right, I'm going to pretty much set down my style of play bar a few months when I'll play 3-4-3 three, three, and I'm going to recruit around that style and the guys that can't do it will go and I'll get in guys that can. And the problem is that, the, the, um, well, part of the problem is, because I don't want to make Arteta sound like a total victim here, the market's buggered so he can't get rid of the players that can't do it, um, particularly going forward because the more you look at Arsenal's forwards, pretty much all of them except for Lacazette don't really fit the style of attack that Arteta wants. And like if Lacazette's the only one it really suits, like with all due respect to him, that's not the guy you really, really want it to suit. Like the other guys are like, I think, much more suited to like counter press, broken play kind of style. And so the the problem for Arteta comes, do you replace all of those guys? Even if you could, which you can't. So so what do you do? Do you keep waiting and hoping you can turn them over in the market and then bring in the players you want? Well, that really doesn't look like it's going to happen. But then do you kind of compromise what you want to do and go, okay, I'll play a different style that suits these guys a bit more and potentially lose authority and respect like Emery did? And even if the forwards favour that that style, we've just given a four-year contract to Granit Xhaka. Granite Jacker cannot play that counter-pressing style. If you've got Granite Jacker in midfield, you are you can't commit to that style. You just can't because he can't do it. And there's there's probably a reason that Granite Jacker is one of the the kind of few players who I'd say is playing to the top of his potential under Mikel Arteta because the style suits him. Um, but it doesn't suit quite a lot of other players and quite a lot of other players who are who are good at doing things that are more valuable than what Granite Jacker does. So. Um, yeah, I, I think Arteta's got a real dilemma there. And in fairness to him, and, and like I say, it's not just about the market. He chose to give Aubameyang the contract. He chose to sign Willian. He chose to sign Cedric. He chose to sign Murray. Like, there's this. This isn't entirely inherited, right? But th- there is like there is an element to which there isn't a good choice for Arteta here. At least I don't think there's an easy choice for him because it's all very well saying well we just changed the style then but if it suits the attack and not the midfield does that make us any more functional I mean maybe you could argue well it gets us more goals so let's do it but then you run the risk of falling into the Emery trap of just completely losing your authority and confusing everyone so I do think that Arteta's in a real bind here and I I have to say I don't think he'll ever get out of it yeah it it's funny, I remember in December, Tim, I said, find me an example of a manager where it got this bad and he turned it around. And for a little bit there, it, it looked like that's exactly what Arteta was doing. But once you've dropped that low, people's concerns about you are always simmering at the you know at the edges. And so all it takes is a little bit of a dip again to, to reignite those worries. And I, I still think there's some digging out of that hole that needs yeah. to be done. And, you know. and maybe in fairness, if he gets hurt guard, for example... And he can start Erdegaard at number 10 and Smith Rowe on the left and Saka on the right. Then maybe that's a bit closer to what he wants. But yeah. Clive? Yeah, I I think we spoke. I feel like I've got some deja vu. We spoke about this recently, actually, didn't we? About there's a decision to make. And I remember when I did scored guy said to me, it's not that binary. It's not that binary, Clive. We can be a pressing team and a possession team. But I do think this is the crux of things. We are trying to build a possession team. 
in a time where we can't build it. So the quickest way to Rome is to find out in your head and in your heart which of the players who are my core and what style of system suits them. And this is why I think he's getting mixed up. And I do think he's in the washing machine. And I must admit, I'm in the washing machine as well because (laughs) I thought he would work this out a bit quicker. You know, and it's just, I think it comes back to when he first came on board, he picked a system with the players that we had that would get the maximum from them. And then he got the FA Cup win, etc. And he obviously got confidence with everybody in the club. Now he's trying to build something. And it's almost as if, I'm not saying results don't matter because they do, but if results mattered, he would pick a system for those players that are ready and available now. And I think he's trying to build a vision that I can't tell what it is yet because yeah. the core people are still here. And so you've got to make a decision. I can't I can't do much more with this. I can't get them where I need to get them to. But I know this system works on this day. I know if I put him there on this day. I know if I go down this side, this works. I know that this guy does loads of crosses. So I need to build something around the core people who are my disciples. I think what is developing quite clearly to me, there are people that are disciples that are absolutely on board with him, and there are some that are not. And he can't chin the ones who are not. And so, but he's got to get some form of football strategy going. Now, I said on a message that the season didn't start until September the 1st, and I got a load of stick for it. But I sort of meant it because I was hoping the disciples would be here and the other ones that weren't wouldn't be here. At least we can judge him then. But I'll tell you now, I'm not sure that's a. I'm not sure we can, the Arsenal world can handle waiting until September the 1st to understand what this team's going to look like. I think it's really close to full spin cycle on that washing machine full spin cycle it's really um, a worrying time and the only place I'll not disagree with you but slightly take a different perspective is this is where I think being a first time coach really hurts him I think if you look at successful coaches they have their way and they have perfected it in their mind and they bring it to a club I don't care if you're Sam Allardyce or Jurgen Klopp Pep Guardiola Rafa Benitez Bielsa I don't care who you are these coaches that have been in the game a while have their way. They come in, they implement it. And some of the players can't do it. They go and they get replaced. But from day one, the club is rowing towards that direction. This is how we play. We're all going to play this way. And I hear a lot, Arteta doesn't have the players that can play the way he wants. I don't know if I know that I agree with that. Because at the end of the day, when Klopp arrived at Liverpool, did they already have a Klopp team? When Pep arrived at City, when when Bielsa arrived at Leeds, when, you know, I mean, you can even look at the younger coach, when Potter arrived at Brighton. The fact is they have a way they want to play. And they implement it day one, and the team gets better at it and better at it and better at it. And over time, you start to refine the squad to be able to play that way. But this team still doesn't have a way that it's trying to play that that seems clear. And I, I think Arteta's made his life harder. I'll give my one big thing really quickly. My one big thing is that the cronkification of Arsenal is nearly complete. There's an Edmund Burke quote that Edmund Burke never said. It's not. It's actually not a real quote. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And John Stuart Mill actually said something a little closer in 1867. Let not anyone pacify his conscience by the delusion that he can do no harm if he takes no part and forms no opinion. The cronkification of Arsenal requires the fan base to be apathetic, to accept mediocrity, to embrace the changes in the club and normalize to what we've become. Two eighth place finishes, category A games on general sale, Shrugging our shoulders when we extend Granite Shaka to 2025 because hey, he seems fine. He's good enough. 
giving 32-year-old strikers 300 grand a week after we had a number 10 we did the same thing with and it backfired, signing 50 million pound center backs with limited experience when it's our attack that doesn't work, and we shrug and we say it's okay, taking first-time coaches and making them managers, sacking off guys like Sven Mislintat so guys like Raul can stay, and we look at it and it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we try to justify it because as fans, we don't want to accept that things aren't okay. We want to believe things are okay. But things aren't okay. And this is what the cronkification of a club is about. Getting you to mediocrity and getting the fan base to just normalize to it. And that's where we are. A mediocre football team. A club that's organizationally quite mediocre at a period where other teams are getting sharper. And no clear path to us getting back to where we want to go. And I'm not saying it's because Stan won't spend some effing money. Because he will. It's because there's no oversight. At the highest levels of this club... Adu can do whatever he's doing and Raul can do whatever he's doing and first-time coaches can be giving long leashes and presumptions they'll succeed. The fact is, the fish rots from the head. The fish rots from the head. And so when you have an organization that is in dysfunction, the person who is most responsible for that is the person at the top. And so in my view, what a cronkification of a club is about is about sliding into mediocrity Everybody in the orbit of the club accepting that mediocrity and then just hovering there. And I feel that we are hovering in mediocrity, not because we lost to Brighton on opening day, but because if you look at the past several years and the mistakes we make and the people we've brought in, the people we've moved out, this doesn't feel like a club that has a clear laser-focused plan to get back to being not a top-four team, a title-contending team. Now, losing to Brentford, whatever, that, you know, that can happen, but... This is a continuation of a slide. And I know there were people that would say, well, how is this Stan's fault? It's Arteta's fault? Or it's the player's fault? Or it's Adu's fault? But when there's so many organizational failures, the person responsible for that is the person at the top. The buck stops here. And there is no one at this club where it clearly stops. Who is the person you trust to look at what's going on at Arsenal and sweep it all out and put the right structure in? For me, there's no one. And so my one big thing is that the cronkification of this club is almost complete. And as fans, we sort of have to stop pretending it's fine because it's not fine. It's not fine. So that's uh, that's that. We're now going to actually get into the game and get into the things that are uh, happening in the world of football. But before we do that, the summer of soccer continues on Paramount+. Plus. You can stream over 2,000 soccer matches a year from around the world. That's all the heart-pounding drama from CBS Sports, including... UEFA Champions League, Europa League, Italy's Serie A, Argentina's Primera Division, the Brasileiro, NWSL, the Asian Football Confederation, and the CONCACAF Qualifiers, featuring the stars from the U.S. and Mexican men's national teams, plus much more. It's the best of the beautiful game, minus Arsenal, with all the beautiful names like Messi, Mbappe, Ronaldo, Rapino, and Pulisic. Be part of the excitement as champions are crowned and history is made. The world's game lives here on Paramount+. Plus. Visit ParamountPlus.com to start your free trial and stream every match live. I know there are some names that I had to mention in there, and I apologize, but the fact is those are the names that are associated with that particular broadcast, and if we want our names associated with it, the best way to do that would be to get into the European places. So, um, Tim, Oba, not available. Lacazette, not available. Mm-hmm. I have been burned, as people who've listened to this podcast know, by questioning the veracity of reports of illness. Um, they said Aubameyang had the flu. I still maintain Aubameyang did not have the flu. <laughs> and to be fair, they may have thought that's what he had. He had malaria and obviously very serious and glad he's okay. 
It is a global pandemic, and unlike last season where there was a bubble and it was harder for these players to get it and they had to you know, live according to these very strict protocols, now we're all out in the world doing our own thing. So I am much more inclined to believe that two friends, two players who are friends out in the world doing their own thing may have indeed been exposed or even gotten COVID. We don't have a report, so we don't know for sure. I just find it hard to believe that on the dawn of the new season, this manager benched both, literally kicked out of the side, both of his senior strikers. Now, we know he did it in a North London derby with Aubameyang. It worked out and he looked like the man. I'm not sure it worked out long term, but I, I just can't, I can't buy into the conspiracy theories here. So I, this maybe doesn't require much of a conversation, but do you have any instincts at all that this maybe isn't what it looks like on the surface? No, no I don't. And, um, and you know, Aubameyang was, was benched for that North London derby. He wasn't left out of the squad. I, I'm with you. I, I think it would take a hell of a lot that on the day of the game that they're both left out like that. I, I did get some info. I, I can't 100% verify it, but I did um, I did get some information on Friday that the game came into some doubt mm. because of this, um, which which I imagine was if Arsenal said that two players were ill. I, d- I don't know this for sure, but I imagine there are some kind of protocols that are needed, um, i.e. You know, to show that there isn't some kind of breakout in the camp. So... I, you know, I, I think there was some of that going on on Friday afternoon. I, I gather there might have been some testing done um, last minute. Like I say, I can't 100% verify that. But um, yeah, that, that was what someone said to me. So um, yeah, yeah. I, but but even even absent that, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I think for two players, albeit two players that are close for that to happen to, I you know, I, I'm not sure how much... I believe that really. Um, and then the subsequent stories about, well, they're both up for sale. And it's like, well, yeah, of course they are. <laughs> Surely they've been up for sale since May. Um, definitely Lacazette has. And I'm pretty sure we'd listen to offers for Aubameyang, but I'm pretty sure that even Arsenal aren't stupid enough to expect any. Um, this so, is yeah. like the media taking one plus one and making 11, though. Like, oh, they were out of the team. There's some, yeah. you know, some gossip going on. Let's pounce on this and say that there's transfer rumors from that. I, you yeah, know, nothing yeah. felt concrete. And agree. And what I would say nowadays as well is there there is like a really good and established like Arsenal press pack, if you know what I mean. Yes. Who, who mm-hmm. get good quality information about Arsenal and none of them are saying that. Yeah, there, there might be something come out in the next couple of days. We don't know. But, you know, David Ornstein got this story, um, as he usually does, before it came out anywhere else. And there was no mention of a fallout or anything like that. So he obviously got information that, you know, the club didn't necessarily want him to have. I'm sure that Arsenal wanted Brentford to find that out when they saw the team sheet um, and not on Friday afternoon. So I can't imagine that someone gave him incomplete information about that. And, and as yet, we've had no information from those very well-connected you know, Arsenal, very well-sourced journalists about anything else. So, um, yeah, I I don't really read an awful lot else into it. Yeah, I I guess I would just say that, like, if there's something else there, we have to hope there isn't something else there because that takes Mm -hmm. a situation around the club right now that's a little worrying. It makes it pretty desperate because I don't see how you can sell either of them, certainly not Aubameyang on that wage, unless you're willing to literally just, like, 
give them away. It is crazy that we're one year away from the Aubameyang contract re-signing and every worst case scenario feels like it's coming true with that to some extent. Now that, that can still turn around, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say as well, the, the comment that did worry me though was Arteta's really less than emphatic answer on Aubameyang before the game, you know, when he was asked, is he in decline? And he said, I don't know. And you just think, fuck me. Like, I know, I know you're inexperienced at this, but Jesus Christ, like... It's one day before the season starts. Your captain, who's low on confidence, whether it's his fault or not, wherever the fault lines are, it's like not important. You need him to play well. Everyone needs him to play well. Arsenal fans, everyone, you definitely do because your job fucking well depends on it. And you say, I don't know. Like, for fuck's sake, man, like, what are you doing? And he's and he's on a, a, a an absolute bear of a contract that surely yeah. you signed off on him getting. Exactly. Right? And he's so, got two years left. So it's not like no one's taking it off us. Like, even if you don't believe it, you say he's our captain. He's brilliant. He's amazing. Last season was a one-off. You'll see this year we're going to play in a way that really suits. Like, you really pump him up. You don't say, I don't know, for fuck's sake. Uh, also good if he is in the shop window nothing says by our player like he might be in decline (laughs) i just feel yeah it's it's a weird one no question clive uh, another weird one is i don't know if you noticed this but buying a 50 million pound center back did not fix the attack now to be fair we did not have lacazette novamiang uh we did not yet have odegaard uh we did not have thomas party so as i said in my one big thing there are always excuses there's always there's always something that we can use to to explain away the, the problems but I think one thing that could lead to this season being more worrying than we might have anticipated is if the defense takes a step back. Leno looks like maybe he just don't won't be at Arsenal anymore. Um, ben White's going to need time to transition. I mean, that's the thing that we had a lot of debate about, but I think that looks clear. And then Pablo Marie is whatever Pablo Marie is. We've got four right backs, but not one. I'm I'm nervous about the defense. What's your take on? the defending generally and the the state of that back four, because I see one player I feel good about and then a unit that looks really, really questionable. Okay, so let's take them one by one. Um, Please do, yeah. Uh, Can we Len- get other clubs to take them one by one? <laughs> <laughs> Leno has not... He's um he's dived into the first hole that's in front of him. He tends to do that. Yeah. We are... Tim said something a while back, actually, uh, a long while back when we were in the Emery era and getting... 20 odd shots against us. I think Tim sort of said, was it like a, he's like a, a good mid table goalkeeper? Is that right, Tim? Something like that, he said. Yep. So basically, would show up really well in a team that concedes lots of shots. We've conceded a lot less shots now. And I think, M, uh, I think um, Leno's decided to. I felt the game at the weekend was going fine until he started touching the ball. Do you know what I mean? As soon as he started touching the ball, I thought, hold on, we're bringing doubt into our game. And I think that's what he's doing. He's bringing doubt into our minds. And because he's not active doing lots of shot stopping, we're seeing him in almost thoughtful play, and he does not exude any confidence to me. And I think that's seeping for the team. Callan Chambers, I was very disappointed with. Um, I would have picked him. I said it. I said it on the instant reaction. He, I, he would have been in my team. He's our first choice right back, in my opinion. But he's come back from preseason out of condition. He's not as fit as he should be. For somebody trying to grab his chance at Arsenal to be the number one guy, you're blowing out your ass, mate. Literally blowing. That's disappointing that you haven't thought, this is a place where I need to really show this spot is mine. Very disappointing to him. Meek, slow, 
not in contact, not tight enough, not quick enough, not fit enough, can't get up the pitch, can't get back to defend, didn't support the guy next to him, who has been picked on one-on-one. Why can't you take some of those collisions for him or at least cover around? First ball, second ball. I thought White was picked on a little bit um, by Tony in particular. But I'm not overly concerned by that. Um, Pablo Marie, he's jumped in the same hole that Leno has. Where where's it come from? Why do this? You've been steady up to now. We know what you haven't got. But you've been steady and you've not exuded this lack of confidence and instability until pre-season and now this first game. And you talk about Kieran Tini being our fourth defender. Well, he's never in defence, right? He's always at the pitch being our best attacker. So, and that's the unit that we have. So we left spaces for Marie to cover, didn't cover him. I think this was a, this to me was a preparation issue. If Brentford are playing two strikers, you know what I'd have done, Elliot. You know what I would have done. I know, yep. And And sometimes you've got, you just <laughs> got to do it for these games. We've got Chelsea in the next game. You know what I would do for that game too. Match people up who pay this system. Make sure you've got three defenders versus their two strikers and you boss them and keep one to cover around and you push them back on the sides and you control the interior. It's not complicated. We try to put our players into our system, young inexperienced players without the comfort of distances, no solidity at the back. Shaka's brilliant in the back three, one in front. Let Laconga float and sweep side to side. Shaka does his bit from the deep position. That's his best position for me in the midfield too, with three behind him or next to party. Otherwise, not for me. You're a target to be picked on. And so all the old instabilities came back. And um, disappointing. I don't think terminal. We know what we need to bring back. The players who don't play suddenly look better. Um, but there's a concern there that everyone saw. If you lo- load onto our centre-backs, we could get into problems. Mm. I mean, Clive, I guess what I would say to you is when you look at what we have personnel-wise right now, I mean, I I have been really loath to look at the defense at all because I think whether we can have a good season or not, rises and falls, rests on whether we can get the attack to work. But it didn't really occur to me that Arteta had made the defense pretty solid, and if that goes away suddenly things can get bad really quickly. So I guess looking at the personnel we have, and and you can maybe answer this in just like one sentence or, or less, do you feel that the defense will ultimately be okay this season like last season, or is that a question in your mind? Um, well, the defense was okay last season. I didn't, but none of us really felt it, did we? We just mm-hmm. looked at we looked at the stats at the end of the season. And went, oh, that's not too bad. But you know why one, though? But that's because every game was so tight, right? Because yeah. we never we never we we were never two goals clear in any games. You know. Yeah, I can't, yeah. some of the things I wanted to say are coming back to me, but I let others go. But okay, I, yeah. I think there is more to that. You, you've now seen what happens to a team when instability wreaks on them, and yep. it doesn't matter what your attackers are. You can see it now, and everyone they can smell it and they go for it. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's my view on football. I don't want to be too big on this, but my view on football is you sort your back door out. Everything flows from there. Yeah, well, so, Paul, one of the things that obviously makes the Brentford game hard to analyze in a vacuum is the lineup is not a lineup that anyone would regard as our first choice. But I think, as I said earlier, we do sort of take this attitude sometimes that anytime things aren't exactly perfect for Arsenal in a situation, that becomes an explanation, an excuse for things not going well. This is pretty unique. I mean, you, no Enkedia, no Lacazette, no Aubameyang, no Party, uh, you know, no Gabriel. So I get it. 
But I guess I would say is the lineup an excuse or an indictment in the sense that, you know, the strikers that we're missing are three guys we'd be probably happy to shift. Um, you know, I don't know that this is that far off a strong. So, I mean, party instead of Samby is, is probably an upgrade, but I don't know how much it changes. I guess when you look at that lineup, a lot of us were excited by it. Let, let's be honest. We did the yep. pre-match live stream. We were excited to watch uh, Balogun and Martinelli and uh, Smith Rowe and Pepe. You know, he, he started players we were looking forward to watching. What I would ask you is, when you see the same patterns, no matter who the personnel is, do you find that to be a reasonable indictment of the coach? Because this did feel a little bit like, get it to Tierney and Cross, get it to Tierney and Cross, get it to Tierney and Cross. While Shaka passed up opportunities to play Martinelli in and passed up opportunities to play Balogun in and just get it to Tierney and Cross. So I get that the personnel was not what we would consider anything like a first-choice team, but is the fact that the, the attacking patterns looked so familiar really highlighting the fact that we're a team that's, that struggles to vary it, to create the kind of chances you need to to hurt hurt the opposition? Yeah. Um, look, I think you got to say a little more on the lineup in terms of... Please, yeah. Like, we played a striker who's had zero Premier League minutes, and we played Martinelli, who was back from... The Olympics and really hadn't played with the team um, and wasn't very integrated on the day. And, you know, we're still struggling to work out how to use Pepe. So he was the experienced player who needed to step up on the day, but he did that thing of coming inside and passing inside all the time. Um, so if you're Arteta, you're not looking at that thinking, that's really what I wanted on the day. Um so the one thing he did have with those three guys was the ability to press and to to go after Brentford. And I think we started okay the first 10 minutes and then the energy of their team and their crowd pushed us back. And the problem when you play Brentford, like I watched Brentford play Leeds uh, two seasons ago. They, they played them twice, which is kind of interesting because Ben White was the centre-back. And... He had no problems against Brentford. And the reason was um, Leeds and the way they defend is by being on the front foot and putting the pressure on the other team and stopping Brentford doing what they did in this game. But the big issue in the, for us was we didn't have party. We had Sambi, who I thought was absolutely great considering, but he's not going to have the presence, the, the physicality that, our two centre-backs needed in terms of the screen, and then just the energy of Brentford, the excitement, the fact that this was an FA Cup game. Um, you can look at it and say, we were always going to have trouble here because if you let... This, this is going to be an issue against any team who can really put big pressure on our centre-backs when, when that's the pairing. I think you'll remember, like maybe two podcasts ago, Ben White came up briefly and I said, I really love him as a player. I'm not entirely convinced he's a centre-back. Um, and we didn't really get into it, but he plays centre-back. I, I think he's a really good player. I think he's really intelligent. He'll have way better games than this. But when you can get enough crosses onto um, our central pairing, and if Bellerin's your full-back and Kearney, Tierney's your other full-back, and it's basically... 
Ben White and one other, be it Gabrielle or Mari, we're going to have a lot of pain. And I think Jamie Carragher said uh, on, on the post-match analysis, the opposition has figured out, just put it on Ben White's head. Yeah. What he, I'm not saying that. That's what Jamie Carragher said. Yeah. And he's six foot tall, so it's not too bad. He's actually taller than Tony. Um, and in the Leeds defense, he was partnered with center backs who weren't any taller than him. They just did it by a team that put pressure on the other guys. And and they they stopped the crosses. They had, you know, when they played Brentford, they had more crosses, they had more corners, they had more everything. They just pushed them back. And unfortunately, given our lineup, given, you know, Sambi and the fact that we then pushed Chak over to one side, but Chaka then tried to step up and be the man, the more physical presence in midfield because we needed that. But it's not really, he's not the most proactive defensive in fact he, he's pretty low on defensive actions so our back line was exposed um to get at them we were pushing our full backs up and our front line was all new it you know there's a recipe for where we were going to get clocked in this one and we'll have better days than this but we'll also have other days like this we'll play burnley soon enough we know what they're going to do yeah um i love ben white I think he's a great player. I think he'll get much better, much stronger. Carraher himself said he wasn't any bigger than Ben White. So Ben's just going to have to get a lot tougher and more physical along the way. He's, but, he's yeah. historically been very bad in the air, just statistically. Yep. And it yep. does seem like that was part he, of the plan, was to target him with aerial duels. Yeah, know? and but on the other hand it's who it, who you have around you and I, i've seen him win a lot of head headers in midfield like he's very proactive that, that that's the way you play with him like leeds weren't any taller at the back than ben white he was as tall as most of their center backs he was ever paired with they just pushed the other team back so if that's what our plan is going forward that we're going to be more proactive use our younger players go at them use party in midfield um so be it. But if it's not something like that, this is a, colo- a colo- uh, sorry, colossal miscalculation and an unusual use of resources, which is why I would have wanted a director of football who could really test my coach and manager in the transfer window. Directors yeah. of football own the transfer window. So we can slam our tet all we like and we should, but directors of football own the transfer windows. If that's indeed the structure at our club. But I, I take your point. And as Clive said, too, look, you can lose the first ball, win the second ball. We didn't win a lot of second balls, and that's criminal. Tim, um, we, we're going to get to some of the, the highlights, by the way, because, like, Smith Rowe was brilliant, and that deserves to be discussed, and we will absolutely discuss it. But I want to stay on on the performance of the back line just for a second, because, I, you know, judging Ben White off one performance would be absolutely insane. Like, it's totally insane. And, and so we, we won't do it. We won't sum him up. I want to read you... Uh, what I wrote on Twitter right after we did sign him, Uh, you know, because I said it's gotten a bit difficult to share honest opinions about transfers because people get really intense about it. But here goes. I said, I'm excited for Ben White. I think he's a good player with tons of upside. I'm not sure he's ready right now to anchor a back four, and we paid like he is. I think it was a big call prioritizing center back and especially a young one with learning to do. Gabriel is still learning, and we're likely to have a shaky right back. It puts a ton of pressure on White, who is transitioning from a back three system and still learning. doesn't mean he won't thrive. Okay, um, 
You know, and I said, look, as it stands right now, he's the only addition to the starting 11 that finished eighth last season. So there's clearly work to be done and he can't fix it all. My sense is that while he will struggle a bit because he's young for a CB and won't have the safety net behind him, um, that there will be high highs and low lows. And hopefully the price tag doesn't deprive him of the patience he might need. I did go on to say, I'm excited to see what he becomes. The reason I read that out is it is fair to say that when you pay 50 million pounds for a center back and make that the centerpiece of your summer business, that it it changes the evaluation, the analysis of him. It changes what Sky's going to say about him at full time. It changes how fans are going to react to him because it transmits a level of importance. And so I'm curious what your sort of instant reaction, so to speak, is to the Ben White performance and the idea that we made this our, our big signing because I still see a team that's like, Shaka passes to the left back and the left back crosses and then we run back towards our goal. <laughs> you know, yeah, so yeah. When, it didn't fix that. Yeah, yeah. And I think you make a fair point there. Like, is is he the guy to transform things in, in terms of our defense? I, I think the thing is with White, um, a lot of the things we've been talking about, and and not and, and all of us, not just this podcast, but everyone that's talked about this signing more or less, is we've been talking about what he'll do for our build-up. And, uh, you know, his, his passing range, can he get us higher up the pitch, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there is a job to do in defense as well. And we probably know that for most teams in the big six slash top eight, however you really want to look at it, um, probably, you know, your distribution is possibly the most important thing about being a defender um, for the majority of games, but not all games. The, the problem is that people don't do... Oh, do our opponents really look at us like that anymore? Mm. Do our opponents look at us like, well, actually, we're not going to put a lot of pressure on their centre-backs because we're so scared of what they can do going forward. Um, certainly didn't see that from Brentford. And to be fair, I didn't expect to see that from Brentford because that's not how they are. Like As a newly promoted team, Brentford are much more in the mould of Leeds. Um, and I'm I'm not necessarily saying like I I think Brentford of all the teams in the league have like the biggest range of potential outcomes this season. In that I think they could finish anywhere between tenth and twentieth. And if you told if you came back from May now and told me where they finished, I'd probably believe you. I could see them having the lead season. I could see them going down because they're just one of those teams. They play the way they play, and mm-hmm. they don't care um, about you. And that either really works or it really doesn't. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to think they'll be all right, but and and look, there are some caveats available to Ben White. You know, he's just come back from the Euros. Um, you know, had had a couple of friendlies with Arsenal, um, Brentford, just come up. Blah blah blah. They have in Ivan Tony one of the more physical, dare I say, old-fashioned types of striker in the league. But I I kind of I I tend to. I, I think there's there's potentially a lot of truth in your assessment about is he the guy to hold all of this together? But at the same time, you do kind of have to ask what the alternative is um, in terms of like, I I don't think it was prob- like our absolute biggest priority. I do think we needed a centre-back like when you lose David Luiz. And for all of our talk about Saliba, I really don't, I don't think this would have gone much better for William Saliba either. I, I think that would have been a real shock to his system in a parallel universe where we don't sign Ben White. We put all our stock in Saliba. I don't think this game turns out any differently. And I think he has a pretty scary debut. Uh, my my only think- rejoinder to that, what, what if what if the 50 million on Ben White had then was 
a world-class central midfielder that's an upgrade on Shaka or a yeah, yeah. really incredible number 10. Now, we might get that number 10 anyway. But you, you get my point, right? What if yeah, the resources yeah. strengthened another part of the pitch that made us harder to play against? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite, quite possibly, quite possibly. Um, like, yeah, I do think we'll get we'll get the number ten we want. I think, I think in that so, regard, yeah. I I do think that will happen. But, but yeah, you know, it it could be that we've we've spent quite a lot of money on someone who's like David Louise, um, um, and and you know that 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 is within the range of outcomes. However, I I I do think we needed to address that area. I don't I don't think we could go into the season with like Rob Holding and William Saliba as the first choices there. And and I do look at Ben White as, well, he's not the first brick, I guess, because Gabriel and Tierney are there. But I, I think like we need to fix that right-back position. We need to fix the goalkeeper position. And I think mm. at that point, you probably get a better idea. And like you've got to do that. Like We can't do, we probably can't do all of those things at once. I'm sure we'd like to, like to have done all those things at once. But sometimes you've just got to put that brick in and yeah. say, and you know, not say, well, we can't put all three in, so let's put none in. If that makes sense. Yeah, and it's also fair to point out that, like, I am starting to be of the perspective that the attack should just be better. Period. Forget personnel. Like, it can be. I don't think we have such bad attacking players that this is as good as it can be. I I do believe that we have reached the point where you can look at Arteta and say, this is a coaching issue, Paul. Look, the thing is right, and I know this. This won't feel very good, but if teams want to come at us like Brentford came at us, our answer should be fucking great. What do we want? Why do we play out from the back, right? Now, I know everybody's thinking... Well, you're right. If they come at you and they press you high up, that that plays into our play out from the back system. Play around the press and create numerical advantages the other way. I hear you. Yeah, these guys sent 10, 10... 10 players, well, hang on, let me do some maths. Nine players, depending <laughs> on who was kicking the ball, uh, ahead of the kicker at times. Like, they gambled. Our problem was we were shit, right, yeah. at, at our part of the game. Like, if the magical answer is always to send to put two big guys up front, then every team should do that all the time. But it's not because it just doesn't work all the time. We've got a guy... We've got a setup that's supposed to be good at playing out from the back. So let's get good at playing out from the back again, play around these guys. But our biggest frustration has been our kind of turgid uh, attack of defenses who are in place and won't come out and play to some degree. Now, or sure death, yeah. Yeah. And I know you got to be careful what you wish for, but that should be what we're wishing for. We should be good enough. It's not the end of the world that players will target Ben White. It's the end of the world if we don't take advantage of them targeting Ben White. Yeah, and the funny thing is, like, some of the better chances... Like, the game got kind of fun at 2-0. Pepe had a great chance from a sort of counterattack. Like, we did start to transition pretty effectively once the game broke down. But in those first 60 minutes or so, we took a lot of pot shots from distance, and it was a lot of crossing and nothing very dangerous. Smith-Rowe... Uh, solo opportunity aside, I think last season we were the slowest team in the league in buildup, the deepest starting point for possessions, the most passes needed to generate a shot. I think we just make life way too hard. And the one thing I'll say about, if you can coach an effective press and win the ball higher up the pitch, you can play in broken play more, you can create chances with fewer passes. And when I look at like a pressing monster like Martinelli or a chaos agent like Pepe or, you know, a, a guy like Smith Rowe who who can drive into the defense, like I 
I think we have broken play players, but we don't play a broken play style. We want to get it to Leno and build back to front with 40 passes. That's really hard to do against any team. Clive, let's lighten the mood just a bit, though, because Emil Smith-Rowe is a star. The, the degree to which he looks willing to take responsibility, come get the ball, carry it through thirds of the pitch, beat players, drag it back, get into the box, take a shot, receive on the half turn. Like, he's got it all. And, I mean, he was playing with some very young players in that side, and he was the guy who stood up and said, I know Shaka had the armband, and I don't know if I'm prepared to have <laughs> the argument about that. I think optically it's bad, but legitimately it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. But Smith Rowe was the captain in the sense of, the guy who took responsibility for trying to make this work. Can we at least celebrate an individual performance that I think shows us, much like Saka, who flashed a little bit in his first appearance, there are some young players in this team that are really the beating heart of whatever future we have to be excited about. Yeah, I think um, I think I, heard, I was talking to Lewis offline, and he sort of said, um, yeah, whatever we've done, we're, we're quite well future-proofed. And I agree with that. The players that we bought recently are young, got growth potential, and obviously the ones we got coming through the academy are there. So all the moves that we've made, including Ben White, are good moves for the future and for now. Ben White will be fine, by the way. Don't don't worry about that. He needs to settle into a team. He's just left a team with Lewis Dunk and Adam Webster with Basuma in front. He's coming to a team with Callum Chambers, Pablo Marie, and a 21-year-old making his Premier League debut. It's different, and we and we need to start waking up to the quality. You know, let, um, Brighton turned down forty million from Leicester for Lewis Dunk that was last season. You know, Lewis Dunk is better than Rob Holding. You know, so just because he's there, Brighton doesn't mean that we, he's got a job to do to settle into our team. You know, and I do think we sometimes look at our players and think, yeah, they can do certain things technically. But sometimes we're easy to play against, and that's the truth of it. We're very easy to play against. Now, Smith Rowe, um, yeah, good player, great. But, uh, but I'm almost don't want to talk about this anymore <laughs> because we've we well, I don't. We've got lots of good players that can escape, can escape a man, and don't score. You know, they, they do really nice, pretty stuff. They don't score, right? We don't score enough. We don't keep the ball out of our net enough. We don't contest the game, and we must stop eulogizing these players until we until we are a team that can compete that's the truth we and we're waiting for Odegaard to come in well that's another that's going to really lift our competition level you know, yeah yeah well, no I need you to hear this I need you another to hear this another pretty tippy tippy number 10 I'm not <laughs> against not them <laughs> I'm not against them when we got the solidity behind them do you see what I mean? In the, we need, the team is a balance. You must have the aggressive solidity that creates football that you haven't structured. It mu- Not everything must be patterned. There are, you know, I watch Arsenal many, many times and I don't know where the goal is coming from because you need to compete to win. And I just don't feel we do that enough. And so I'm almost not interested in the in the talent up there. It doesn't matter because the way we play is not sustainable every single week to create a situation where we finish in the top six in the league. I'm telling you, that is the truth. Now, I know there are players missing, and the, some of the players that are missing are real dual experts, right? So so that's, you know, I caveat that. But we, as a group of fans... I think we go too much into these to the technical levels of certain people 
And if you look at their numbers, they don't always produce the output and the goals and the last passes that we should do for how we eulogize them. You know, we were yeah. critiquing Alexis Sanchez and what he does and how many times give the ball away. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> don't yeah. lump me in with that. But, then, but there was a lot of people that did, right? Yeah. And um, and it's that type of scenario. He's too this, he's too that. that back now. <laughs> he's too this. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so I love Smith Rowe. I love Martinelli. I love all of them. But they need to do it on a regular basis before they get eulogized the way they do, right? And we need to make sure we give them a platform for which to enables them to play their football. I think that is the important message. We must stop doing this. You know, giving these people too much too young before they can actually do it. And the, pl- the pleasing thing about this game, and I will go back to your point, the positive, which is <laughs> there was lots of people missing and he decided, I'm going to half pull up my socks and show these lot how to do it. And that is really a good sign for the future. And that says, well, you, you can play football for Arsenal for many years to come and hopefully you want to stay here as, we, as you build yourself and start scoring goals, which we all know is around the corner. And then we're going to have a problem, right? So, but it's a good problem if we build a team around him. Hopefully, he'll be no problem at all. But I do like people who step up in adversity, and he definitely did that. Yeah, and I mean, just look, stats aren't everything. But in a game where I thought we really struggled to create consistent threat and do anything that was dynamic, exciting, centrally oriented, everything went to tyranny, everything got crossed into an empty box, Balogun got let's say it, you know, as Clive would say, boshed around a bit. Um, you look at Tierney and, uh, Tierney, uh, Smith Rowe completed 48 of 49 passes. 48 of 49, okay? He created two chances. Uh, he took two shots. He had that one sensational area, five of five inside the penalty area, 26 of 26 inside the attacking third. He dribbled two guys. I mean, he he really did the things that, you know, you you want that position to do, and I just think the pieces around him maybe did not function in the way yep. that they needed to. I mean, he passed it 14 times to Pepe, so he's getting it to those forwards right now. The one thing I would say with Smith Rowe that maybe is an issue, he loves to drift into the half space and the and the wings, right? He likes to drift wide. He doesn't stay central, and so focal point wise, like does that does that hurt what the striker's trying to do? Does it remove some of those combinations? I mean, Clive, you want to weigh in on yeah, that? Yeah, we we got to create more central partnerships. Uh, yeah. We do. <clears throat> you know what, Elliot? You said something there. You mentioned Granit Xhaka, who's just extended his contract as we sit here to 2024 with a further year as an option. And I read the, the Brentford Twitters, and they say they targeted him in possession. Yeah. And that tells me that, that's a worry, right? They are targeting him. So they're targeting deficiencies in our team. And that's the link to our forward players. And we know it's a safe option. I like Granite Xhaka. I said to Tim the other day that Xhaka and Party are probably one of the better things we have in this team. But man, it does put a ceiling on our potential as well at the same time. Is it possible that two things can be true? You can like somebody <laughs> what somebody can do. But also think, crikey, that limits us going forward. You know, and that's a, that's a worry. Yeah. All right. Well, Tim... I you know I I'll give you a chance if you want to just have a couple of words about Smith Rowe. I mean I I really do think he was magnificent. And I, you know I think this game because we lost it is going to wind up being shrouded in misery and depression and and understandably, um, you know there were some of the young players that I don't think really were able to step up. Martinelli I think we could say was maybe disappointing. Balogun didn't quite look ready, but Smith Rowe for me was was a guy who was ready. So just quickly before we get on the next topic, do you 
do you find him to be a player that in the right system, in the right circumstance can really be transcendent for us? I, I, I think he can, I think he can change things for us. And I, I do worry just the tiniest bit that if we do go get Odegaard, I don't want to marginalize this guy. So are, where, where are you on the Smith Rowe performance and him generally? Yeah, I, I thought it was a really good performance. I, I thought he absolutely did his job, um, essentially. Um, and so if if we get Erdegaard, I, I think we'll just see Smith Rowe play on the left more often than not. And I think we'll have Smith Rowe, Saka, Erdegaard um, with Aubameyang up front, which, which I can live with, um, definitely. I, I, I still think that you know, I still think that like Pepe, Martinelli, they're, they're players I'd like to see play more. Um, probably Martinelli. I mean, thinking about this, like, I do wonder if there's a future for Pepe and Martinelli at the same time. And of those two, I'd I'd rather hang on to Martinelli um, because I think his ceiling's higher. So, um, you know, there, there are some there are some things to sort out in there. But I, I think Smith Rowe would play wide, and I think that would be absolutely fine. Not least because. I think he'd do all the Smith-Rowe stuff, but you'd keep some of that centrality with Erdgaard. And and mm. at the same time, I think I think you always need two creators in a team. I don't think you can just give it to a number 10 and hope that they do it. Um, maybe you, you can some number 10s, but really I think they need like a, a creative, uh, you know, almost like a bass player um, to help them keep the rhythm. And, and, and I could see Smith-Rowe and Erdgaard doing that and that and that begins to maybe take us away from the idea that we've got a load of forwards who can't play the style that Arteta wants and and um again I'd, I'd point you to Lewis Ambrose's Lewis Ambrose's piece and he was talking about how intelligent Smith Rowe's movement is in the wide spaces how he knows when to go towards the guy with the ball and wh- when and he also knows when to get the hell away from him um, and create space for him, and 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 I really like his movement in those wide spaces. I I do think um, maybe as a number ten, like for all of our games, he's probably not quite there yet in terms of like the amount of end product. He's like he's more of a facilitator at this moment mm. in time. So I I am like I I'm all right with the idea of say Erdegaard taking that role and him going out wide. Um, and I think when he played there last season, he looked he looked just as good. He did he did all the Smith Row things, basically. Yeah. And then we can have Saka on the right doing Saka things. And then I, I think you've got you've got a forward line that at the very least um, plays to its strengths a bit better. Yeah, I'll come back to another point. But Paul, you want to add on Smith Row? Yeah, very much so. Um, I thought he was huge in this game. Um, I my big fear as I said a couple of times, is that like these young fellows, your Sackers, your ESRs, would come back kind of second year, though third year syndrome for Saka. Um, But he, you know, Saka's got his own stuff he's had to deal with over the summer. And both of them in this game, Saka had a much shorter appearance, but both of them were total difference makers. It, It took a while for Brentford's energies levels to drop a little bit so you could see Smith Rowe kicking in but he he was a guy breaking lines bursting up field I think he's such a different player to Odegaard that they don't offer the same things for us they offer creativity in that sense and they they need they need one of the starting spots that's about it uh Smith Rowe will burst from line to line he'll he's an attacking threat uh he'll join dots 
through his running, through his one-twos. But Odegaard's a put his foot on the ball, have a look around, uh, kind of more of, uh, I, I used the pretentious term la pausa last time, which I think is important to differentiate with Smithrow because that's not what he is. He doesn't stop, uh, assess the situation, uh, kind of look for the visionary ball. He he goes at them. He speeds things up. He's goes he goes faster. And you can absolutely play him from the left. And my my front four would be one of our four one of our strikers, uh, Sack on the right, Smithrow on the left, and Odegaard at the ten. Because you basically have two attackers and two creatives with Smith Rowe, uh, sorry, with Saka and Odegaard. You have, if you like, somewhat more creative players, and I think Smith Rowe will just become more and more attacking, um, and he'll just go for it. He'll just rip at them in a, in the sense of a very front loaded uh, Aaron Ramsey. Um, and yes, he's going to be creative in the sense that he's going to partner with other people and look for them. But it's going to be a very aggressive style of creativity. He's going to run at people. Like the other contrast I have with Smithrow and why I, this really popped for me was these are the games. Uh, I don't know if it was always true or fair, but we would have said about Ozil and this kind of game. Oh, you know, he doesn't like those intense away games. He kind of disappeared and wasn't there for us. And whether you think that's fair or not. Certainly, that's not Smithrow. I think uh, him, Sambi, and Saka can be very proud of them, themselves as young men stepping up in that environment and being brave and performing <clears throat> and not backing down. And, and Tierney's the other one you can say absolutely uh, got stuck in here and made a difference. And despite the energy of Brentford, they shone. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, I... I think when you have players like you know, like Sambi, young, new signing, starting in that kind of a cauldron environment, first game of the Premier League season, and a lot of senior players missing, and you just look comfortable and and you do what you're asked to do, and you do it pretty effectively. Like, and you play that's forward. A good, yeah, that's a good sign. I, I, but but Tim, I did want to get back to you on this just real quick. I went into the instant reaction pod, and you know that was an emotional time, and I said on that pod, if Shaka hasn't signed that contract yet, tear it up. We need to stop making mistakes. Okay, maybe that was an overreaction. But I do look at this player who continues to be such a focal point of everything we do. And he had his one little nightmare in this game, right, where he a, a back pass gone wrong, and I think Leno put him in it a bit. But Shaq, you know, again, he scans. He should know where the trouble is. He just can't turn quick enough. We see that he... When you watch Samby taking on the half turn or Smithrow doing it, you see a player who can't. It stands out. But, I mean, it's 25 passes to Kieran Tierney from Granite Shaka. It's almost a meme. I mean, there was there was a tweet that I retweeted. You know that that I think he said, uh, "I see our attack again is uh, Shaka to Tierney and Inshallah cross." You know, crossing and Inshallah or whatever. Like, uh, like the for me the the centrality of Granite Shaka to our play and the the sort of very one dimensional aspect of it is part of this. But this seems to be the guy that Arteta wants to. He wants to nail his colors to that mast. He wants to make. Granite Shack of the guy till 2025. And, you know, whatever the actual contract is, one year plus one or two years, like we are committed to him. He is very important to us and we are not moving on from him. And I'm watching this game. I cannot help but see him as a fundamentally limiting part of how we build play and how we attack. Maybe it's the instructions he's got. Maybe he's just following instructions and that's why Arteta likes him. But I'm curious what you think looking at that midfield and the way it builds play and Shaka's 
really critical importance to it as something that we seem to want to commit to. So th- this was very much Xhaka without party, um, mm. essentially, I think. Um, I do think the combination of them is quite good. Like, for example, um, back in the dim and distant past when we were really good and we had Vieira and Petit in midfield, that- that's basically what Manu Petit was doing. He was doing a fairly one-dimensional role, but it worked because he was with Vieira, um, who did the kind of the trickier stuff. And that's um, I- I'm-, I'm not equating the Vieira-Petit partnership to Xhaka party but that that's essentially what we've got here Vieira was fine without Petit Petit left Arsenal and did nothing without Vieira and that's yeah. that's a kind of a, a, a similar kind of situation we've got here and Lukonga I thought Lukonga was really good but you know he, he's not quite un, like completely understandably not quite got the presence of party yet and and yeah absolutely it, it is a bit one-dimensional it's that's kind of a bit more fine when you've got party and there's a bit more centrality and therefore there is a little bit more to what you're doing. But yeah, you, you don't really get like you don't really get the crossfield Jacker pass anymore. It's very much on my left foot, particularly because he's right over in that left half space. And in fact, he's essentially covering Bettini in a way. It's the up the line with the left foot and it, and it is too predictable, partic- partic- particularly when there's nothing else going on in your play. I think the, the thing about the Jacques, I mean, I've already explained many times why I think the club are, are, are doing the Jacques extension, but um, there's two things that come to mind for me. First of all, it's weird. We're tethering him to the next manager because Mikel Arteta is probably not going to be here until 2024 or 2025. So that, that means that essentially the next manager is kind of stuck with Jacques, whether he wants him or not. And he might, and it might be fine. Um, but also, the, the other thing I think that a more thousand-foot view is going through my mind is as we're talking about this, I'm reminded again of exactly what I thought when I watched the Chelsea preseason friendly, where I just thought, there's two teams going on here because I can see some really good Arsenal players in this team who know what they're doing. There's about five of them. And then there are five guys who look scared of their own shadow and look like they belong in the bottom half of the Premier League. And if and when we tried to sell them, we'd be lucky to sell them there. And yeah, and it comes, and, and that's what this game on Friday looked like. We can all pick the players who looked good and the players who didn't. But what this comes down to is, which one of those teams would you put Xhaka in? That, that big imaginary binary lo- line I've just drawn uh, completely arbitrarily. But which, <laughs> which of those teams would you put Xhaka in? Like, I think we know which one the manager puts him in, but... Um, yeah, on nights like this, you kind of look at him and think, well, he hasn't been like incompetent or anything, really. I mean, he got pressed a couple of times and and didn't like it. But I mean, there were just some easy passes that he missed because he wouldn't use his right foot and things like that, or it took him an age to switch the ball around on his left. And that's that's what's limiting about Xhaka, the, the, not just the one-footedness, but the the lack of speed with which he gets the ball onto that foot. Like it's so telegraphed. It's so telegraphed that no one even tries to intercept that pass to Tierney. They know it's coming and they're like, okay, well, we we just, we just, we, we knew this was coming. We're all in our positions and yeah. And it's, and like when your sole tactic is really to get it to Tierney to put loads of crosses in, you just think, Christ, we, we had Giroud for like nearly six years and we never played like this. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> now, but now like he'd, he'd love this. <laughs> he'd be, he'd be he'd, I say he'd be great in this team, but do you know what I mean? Like he'd really thrive on this this kind of service that, that we're putting in. And, and like I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, 
which one of our attackers is that supposed to suit? Even the guys who aren't playing tonight, like Aubameyang doesn't want that. Lacazette doesn't want that. Pepe doesn't want that. Martinelli doesn't want like who is who are all these crosses for? Like that's what I really we don't have like even like a Ramsey coming in making the third man run. It's like who are they for? What's this mm. for? And um, yeah, that that's where it's it's limiting. Clive, yeah, I mean, <laughs> do you think if we had a Ramsey and a Giroud, teams would let us have those wide areas? No, they, they probably try to, to shut down that. Path. I mean, yeah, exactly. teams give you the option that they feel will hurt them the least, right? Exactly. That's exactly what they do. It's and like we are falling for it. We're falling for it all the time. And I look at the stats, and Shaka has the most touches again. And then, and I say, oh, here we go. And it, again, I, I I don't dislike the player, but we're falling for it. And and how we're playing, as I said the other week, where's this leading to? You know, there's nothing there. Even when the top boys were there, by the way, they're not there neither. They're not in that box. You know, we're not scoring enough and we're not got enough presence in the key areas of the pitch, right? And it, actually, in this game, we lack presence in defence, central midfield, and in central attacking zones. And we did well in the wide spaces on the left. And when Smith Rowe went to the right and combined with Pepe, that's where we did well. So between the boxes, we're not too bad. In the boxes, we're like souffles, right? So, um, and, and that's the truth, right? So, um, it's I, again, it's one game. Come on, Clive, work yeah. it out. Well, it's one game. Relax, relax, relax. But I've sort of seen this film before, and I just want to see us react to it. Well, and I think once you've seen the film before, and the personnel changes at some point, the finger has to point, maybe not at the players, and in another direction, Paul. So on the contract thing, this this isn't a definitive position, but it's a question. Like I just saw today with Bellerin again that although we're trying to sell him, loan him, we plan to extend his contract because asset protection. I know lots of people are now thinking, but we can't sell them when we keep them. So like, why are we kidding ourselves? Like extending the contract doesn't just extend the pain, but... A proper club well run uh, doesn't go into the last year of the contract. And like, there's a logic to extending Chaka, isn't there? We did withholding last year. I not mean, to I, me, no. I, I, I get it. But like, You're if. You're not it, protecting his value, is my point. I, I, I find that an unconvincing argument. Well, don't you want to keep two years on the contract? No, because I, I, I actually think that makes him harder to sell next summer rather than easier. Uh, well, it makes it easier for him to run down his contract, and that's what we're tra- like as a pattern. Uh, if you take Chuck on his own, fine. I know we have the whole. If you take it on its own, fine. But like, I guess my point is, this is part of a pattern where they extend contracts to. Uh, as sure, a I policy. just think that's like a super rigorous application of a policy that, in this instance, because just super super quick, if we can't get a fee we like for him at thirty, turning thirty. We put him on bigger money and try to get a fee we like from at 31. Like but that. we can't get a fee for anybody, and yet we're extending contracts. Right, but he's going to be older and more expensive next summer. So do we think a club's going to you know, uh, uh, wow know. us do with people, a better offer? Do people think <laughs> Bellerin's going to be more attractive next year? No, we shouldn't re-sign Bellerin either. <laughs> okay, but so that's really my point, right? Uh, love it or hate it. And oh, I you, agree that's and what we're just doing. Like, yeah. There's a pattern. It's not just mm. a Chaka conversation, but it is part of a pattern, whether you love it, hate it, Fair or enough. think it should be more nuanced. Fair. 
that that is totally fair. And look, I think we excuse things from players that I like. I think Brentford are going to be in for some tough, tough days ahead. Maybe not next week against Palace, who I think will go down. They were not defending very well. Martinelli and Balogun were in space a lot, and there were passes on with a lot of room. And Granitxaka saw the runs and passed it to Tierney. He will not play that ball. He will not play the ball in behind the, to the left winger. He will not play the ball in behind to the striker. And I get it. Central midfielders don't play those a ton. But it's a high press. It's a high line. There was a lot of room. And I don't think Brentford were even very good at it. For I'm not saying Brentford played fine. But there was space, and we didn't attack it. And that's because the guy who had the ball at his feet, the most in midfield, chose to go out to the flanks instead of playing those balls. And I think we excuse that a lot, but I don't... I, I mean, I, here's what worries me the most. I think it's possible that by three months into this season, Samby and Party is our starting central midfield, and we've now got Shaka on a contract that's longer, and he's not even a starter for us anymore. Um, you know, and, and that wouldn't be that unusual given some of the other moves we've made. But the one thing that I think we can all agree on. The one thing that can bring us together as a fan base is the Lawnmower 4.0. It's the, it's the one thing that consistently, people keep coming to me and saying, thank you for your, your relentless messaging about the Lawnmower 4.0. I don't like your opinions on football. I don't like your jokes. I wish you'd stop interrupting, but telling me about the Lawnmower 4.0 is why I tune in. And so we're going to do that right now, just real quick. I do want to remind you that there is a promo code, right? Arsenal Vision. And it gets you 20% off in free shipping. Think about that for a second. 20% is a lot. Imagine if Arsenal scored 20% more goals this season. Well, that's just the amount of savings you're getting on the Lawnmower 4.0, and you're getting free shipping. And the fact of the matter is, I shaved my privates yesterday in the shower. It was a brilliant experience. It was the best thing that happened to me this whole weekend. You know, because that's the other thing. After you watch Arsenal, you may be inclined to want to self-harm. This thing can't even harm you. It doesn't nick, it doesn't pull, it doesn't tug. It's got the skin-safe technology, ceramic blades. You can't hurt yourself with it. It's got an inductive charge. You just set it in the cradle, it charges, but the battery lasts forever. It goes right in the shower. Eyebrows, sideburns, privates, you name it. Use the guard if you need it or not. And it's men and women, by the way. This isn't, this isn't gendered. I know it's called manscaping, but that can be womanscaping. This is a product for everybody, and I hope you will try it. You can also get the weed whacker and do your nose. They have all these tonics and products that just make everything smooth and healthy and happy. And... um. I, for one, feel that a fresh start is needed down below, if not at the club. And you can get that with Lawnmower 4.0. Go to manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Save 20% and get free shipping worldwide on a world-class product. Clive, is that enough of that? Oh, yes. Very much so. Very much so. Just the 83 minutes into the podcast for that to show up. But you know what? We are rounding the final bend here, not just of our sanity, but also of this pod. I promise it will be over soon. Uh, I, I assure you. So, Clive, <laughs> we can't get out of here without talking about the right-back situation. I, I, I did a tweet. Sometimes I do tweets. And I just look at the right-back situation as sort of a microcosm of the problem of, of governance and squad building at Arsenal. Because it, it just is a really, really strange situation. Callum Chambers has been here seven years, was never deemed good enough, and is now our first choice. Hector Bellerin was once worth $50 million. We didn't sell him. Now we can't move him. Maitland-Niles, we got a good fee. Turned it down. We won't use him. Cedric didn't play on his loan. We gave him a contract anyway. We won't use him. And when it's time to bring on a replacement for Chambers, it's our brand new young left back coming on on the right and looking pretty damn dynamic, if I do say so myself. So, Clive, the, the right back situation... Fullback is such an important position. Look at what Tierney means to us, even if we rely on it too much. We don't have that on the other side, which I think hurts Pepe, for starters, 
And I think it just hurts us generally. So where are you at with this right back situation? What do we do in the short term? I mean, I don't think Tavares is a solution at right back. So what are we going to do? <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for that. Help, help I think, fix it. <laughs> um, again, it comes back to how do you want to play? Seriously, how do we want to play? How do you want that right back to look? Do you want it to be a, a Lamptey type high up and we and we cradle the team with two high fullbacks or creative fullbacks like Liverpool did? Or do we want one to sit in and almost make like a 3 2 5 that way? I mean, how do you want to play? I mean, it, it's still not defined yet. Um, for me, I, I sort of convinced myself that it wasn't really a priority until I went to the preseason game and thought, it's a priority. <laughs> it's a priority because Ben White needs it. He needs some. He needs some something he trusts there. He needs something that he can work off. He doesn't need to be mopping up mess on his left and right. He doesn't need that. He needs to be the person that not say holds us together, but makes decisive decisions and starts things off. He doesn't need to be sweeping up mess everywhere because eventually we'll break him. And it's already started. It's already started. And so what do we need there? We need somebody on that side that can look after his space, that doesn't get bypassed, and he's always jogging. So Ben White's got cover on the right back, and Chambers then goes inside him on a recovery run and covers the centre back when he can get there on time. We need somebody that controls his area. That's what we need. I personally like um, the Chambers type. I, I do, and I think... I, I like somebody that sits there a little bit more, but I'm only saying that because Tierney and Tavares will never be there. They'll be gone. If that's how we play, that's fine. Then balance it out with somebody that can really defend on the right-hand side. That allows Ben Wright to read the game a bit more, look at the game, see it, either step in or step back, cover around, and become that guy who's the insurance policy or the guy that makes the intercept and then drives through. But he can't be the guys looking left and right with starry eyes, right? So, so I, I'm not sure on the exact player. There, well, there's a player I've got in my head. He's at PSG at the moment, actually, that they're going to have to sell. Um, I think there's a player there on, who plays right back, centre back. I think it's quite nice. Um, there's a guy at Barcelona called Emerson Royale. They've just signed him, but there's rumours of a swap deal. He, again, physically strong, can play that role, can drive, but also can sit in as well. Those types of players are ones that come to my eyes. I don't want to look on that side and see weakness because then the whole thing, there's no point in spending £50 million on a, a centre-back that's slick, smooth, creative, but may not be Lewis Dunk. Do you see what I mean? Or Rob Holding. But we're moving away from that, aren't we? We're trying to build play from that position. So allow him to do that by making sure that the right-back look after his man. So from a club squad building perspective, you've covered that really. We are here. We have the one that really annoys me the most mm -hmm. is um, mm -hmm. Cedric. The deal. Let's not talk about it because it's, I, I I love that one. That that one is my favorite of the bunch. Yeah, that that <laughs> we should be we should carry all hold our heads in shape. No, we should hold our heads. The club. Oh, should I hold didn't their do it. <laughs> I was against um, it from the from the jump. <laughs> also, uh, the club should hold their heads on that one. I I can't see it. Um, Chambers has done well to come back. Michael issues with how he's come back this season, but fair play to him. You've recovered your career. Bellerin, they asked they asked him to stay last season. They should have let him go. He, if there's particularly there's enough cover there, they should have let him go. And the ones that annoys me is Maitland Niles. That uh, really annoys me how he's seems to mismanage his own career. He got selected into the England squad as a wing back stroke full back. <laughs> <laughs> 
played for England as a fullback on his wrong foot and then decided, that's not for me. I want to play in midfield. And we're sitting there with a player that could have been something that's completely wasted months of development time. That's his prerogative. Let's see if he goes in the next two weeks. But I find yeah, it. But we annoying. also decided not to take a good bid for him. To, I mean, like, you know, it, it takes two to tango, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we decided not to take that £50 million bid. At the time, I didn't think it was good enough, I'm honest with you. So, you know, a year later, he looks good, right? So, um, particularly if we're not going to use him. Do you know what I mean? So, um, again, it's mismanagement. Can't defend it. But also, can't defend. I think he's missed an opportunity there to do something. He hasn't read the room like Chambers has. You know, he he, he needed to read the room and he didn't. And it annoys me because he has a lot of the things that he, that could have made that position work. But now I don't look at him in the same way. I look at somebody that doesn't respect the club where he should have done and actually has missed so much time where he could have developed himself into a really, really good player in that role. And now I've lost patience with him and, and, and it's a shame that that's happened because he could have he could have been a contender if you know what I mean. <laughs> I do know what you mean. And by the way, uh, Scott's posting some great sort of stats and charts and diagrams from this game on Twitter that you should check out. The one I always love is Zone Fourteen, right? That's that central space right above top of the box, a, a space that I don't think we do enough damage from. Who made the most Zone Fourteen entry passes in the game for us? Samby, Samby did with seven. Then Kieran Tierney. So our left back and our right-sided central midfielder. What did our right back do? Zero zone 14 passes. But that's okay. He was sitting back a little more. But look at Granit Xhaka. Our, our leading passer in the game, three, right? Lukonga, who played quite a bit fewer passes, had seven. I, I just think, again, someone who is a central midfielder who does not want to attack central spaces will hold you back. And so we start to wrap this up a, a, a bit. And Tim, it it really does feel dangerous now with Chelsea and City on the horizon. And it was a weekend where the big clubs put a marker down. I mean, Chelsea looked great. United looked great. City got beat by Spurs, but it was sort of what always happens, right? Like City create more than them. Spurs get a great goal from nowhere. (laughs) They wind up winning 1-0. I mean, maybe this wasn't as much like it had been in the past. They were a little more in the game. But I think City will probably bounce back, it's fair to say, uh, especially when they get Harry Kane, which I still think will happen. Mm Mm-hmm. With, with Chelsea on the horizon, I, I want to just ask you a question. I'm going to set it up. It's a little loaded. There is this sort of attitude about Mikel Arteta. I think like if we just back him and give him enough time, eventually he's going to be a success, that it'll work out. He will be good. But like we don't know that, right? He's not a guaranteed success. It is his first job. And and he's never coached before. We've never We have no history on him at all to know if he's a good coach or not. None. He's been an assistant coach. He's never had the first team coach job. And, you know, when you hire an inexperienced guy, one of the possibilities you have to be prepared for is that it doesn't work, right? I mean, I I was in favor of this risk. I was in favor of him. I liked the idea of him. But when you hire this guy, you have to say, we are hiring a guy who has never, ever coached before, period, to be the first team coach of a big club. And so we must be rigorously aware that this could go wrong and have a contingency. And instead... Six months in, the club made a manager, and now they talk about him like he's an appointment for life. And it's not that I hate Arteta or I think he's terrible, but do you think that there is this sort of weird presumption that he'll that he just will be good, that like he's he's got what it takes, given the fact that I mean, there we don't know that. We do not know anything about this guy as a coach other than what he's done at Arsenal, which for me is a pretty hit and miss period where in particular the attack 
has struggled to fire. I mean, are you sort of surprised at the extent to which a first-time coach is is being afforded this sort of presumption of success? Um, are, are you um, are you saying this presumption is coming from the club? Yeah, and yeah. the fan base, if you want to talk about it that way. But the club in particular, I, I feel like, you know, we, we blame Arteta for things, but I do think when a club hires a first-time guy, you know you're taking a risk. So you should yeah, yeah. be pretty clear-headed about the idea that that gamble may not pay off, but that does not seem to be the case at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's, that's I guess, what we're kind of hearing coming from the club. And, and to be fair, once they decided to stick with him, essentially, if they weren't going to sack him in December, there's not really been much of a reason to sack him since because there has been like an upward trajectory. And, and But ultimately, as, as we, well, I, I know I've always said, the single most important part of the job, whoever is the coach, is to rebuild this squad. And, and that's not easy. It's not easy for anyone because this is a really badly put together squad and we're operating in a stagnant market. Like th- this is a, a real humdinger of a job, regardless of your level of experience. I have to say, I, I don't get that perception from the fans. I don't get the perception of a great deal of protection for Arteta. Um, you know, I guess maybe pockets of it, or maybe there's a little bit of, hmm, yeah, I haven't really made my mind up yet. Um, but I, I don't get the sense that there's a lot of people going into bat for Arteta um, at the moment. But with the club, at, at this point, once they've made the decision to give him the summer, they've got to give him the summer, really. And, and we, don't, I guess we, we don't really know what they're thinking in terms of, do they just let him see this season out pretty much no matter what, unless like, you know, we're fighting relegation or something like that. Or are they in a kind of we'll see after like 10 to 15 games or we'll see at Christmas? Like we, we don't really, I don't think, have a sense of exactly what Arsenal are thinking at the moment. And of course, they will brief that they are completely behind him because they have to, um, particularly if they're, they're kind of letting him rebuild the squad. I, I guess my my focus is more on, it's not so much on now, it's whether they should have pulled the trigger in December or something like that and said, okay, look, this hasn't worked. Like this summer coming up is so crucial in terms of starting the rebuild. Do do we think that this is the guy to rebuild the squad? And yeah, that's more so like now kind of what's happening. I, I I guess once he got through that period without being sacked, I, mm. I guess you, you've kind of, it was one of those decisions where it's like, if you don't sack him now, you can't really, or, or I guess you might get to the end of the season and say, look, okay, we let you see out the season. Thanks. But the next bit is just too damn important. And we don't think you're the guy for that task. So really, it it, it really depends on where their heads are at with this. And there probably is an argument that, look, if you're going to give him the summer and you're going to let him start rebuilding the squad, you do kind of have to give him the time. Otherwise, you do run the risk of, well, now we've let one guy buy a load of players that he wants and now we've sacked him and we've brought another coach in and the next coach doesn't want these players, doesn't want to play like this. And, you know, we end up with even more of a, like, a uh, hodgepodge of a squad that looks like it's been assembled by three different managers because it has and two different directors of football because it has been so i you know i, I don't think that this is enormously straightforward or at least i don't think it is anymore i think it was more straightforward a few months ago than it is now 
Yeah, and and just to be clear, like I'm not saying sack Arteta right now. I'm just saying when you hire a first-time guy who's never, ever, ever done it and make him first-team coach of a big club, you I think you really organizationally have to appreciate how hard that is and support that person with really effective structure, which we haven't done, but also constantly be aware that if it goes wrong and the guy doesn't have it, you have to be prepared to, to accept that because it may turn out that Arteta's not a good coach. I'm not saying that's the case, by the way. I'm just saying there's no there's no track record here. So, Paul, I, you know, the, the issue now, though, is two really, really tricky fixtures ahead. We always knew this could happen, that we could be staring at the interlaw and the closing of the window with one point. I think a lot of us hoped for maybe three or four points. Zero points isn't out of the question. Look, you know you know how we are, as Clive would say. We could turn up and, and beat Chelsea. I mean, we, we did last season when we weren't very good. But do you think that it is a free hit for Arteta in these next games? Or if we're on zero after three games with no goals scored, do you think even though we knew going in how tricky this period might have been, that it, it will just be too hard to sort of live that truth for the fans and the club, despite everything we know? <laughs> um, do I think it should be a free hit? I don't know, but it won't be. Um, like the narrative, the kind of the, he's been dragged into the, the, um, the, uh, washing machine with, who is it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. With, uh, who joined him? Clive, I think. And maybe a cat revolving. I mean, uh, I'm looking in the window at them and they looked like they might be drowning. Um, look, there, there's two games coming up that, like if we put in credible performances, but will we? We still won't have our strikers. We won't have party. I mean, it's not like the issues go away. Uh, we'll just be tested in completely different ways. But hey, let's cross our fingers and hope they put in good performances and maybe we scrape a point somewhere and it looks vaguely creditable. Um, but that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Then you got the international break for best part of whatever, 11, 12 days, I guess. Um, and then we play Norwich. So that's your reset button. And the thing is, I can keep calm, but I don't think, I can't do anything about 99.9999% of the, the fan base. They're all going to do whatever it is they're all going to do and have their own reactions. And right now they're set on a path. Like if the window ends strong suddenly, I don't think Odegaard's going to be enough, but you're going to have that on top of it, of people saying, like the the mayhem, the slaughter in the streets over everybody pointing at everybody saying, I told you if we signed Ben White, then this wouldn't happen. And I, you know, like people are out there in the streets looking for somebody to machete. Um, it's going to be a mess. And uh, yeah, so no, he's not going to get a free hit, even if I could uh, rationalize the fact that I always knew that Brentford would be tough. And I did. Um, and I always knew there was a good chance we'd get beat by the Champions League uh, winners and by the near-record uh, league winners of last season. It won't really matter. Uh, it'll matter a bit. Uh, and, and people, I think at the end of the day, people know you got that he's staying for a little while. It's just a debate as to how long. And people know he's got to get 10 games. And people know we had... A terrible start, 14 games, which can't be allowed happen again last season, um, followed by 24 better games. Um, 
So we know, but I mean, it's still a tough first 10 fixtures. I think uh, we got Tottenham in there and Leicester in there. So there's some good tests. We'll know a hell of a lot more after 10 games, but after three games, you know, he's going to have alligators biting his ass. It's not easy to settle your team down, uh, get the players in, get them firing, get them feeling positive. Imagine you lose Norwich and then I can't, who do we play after Norwich? It's a tough one, isn't it? Is it Spurs? Burnley away. Burnley away, okay. So there's another one where I knew it was a tough one in a sense. That could be Brentford part two. Um, so, like, there's, there's tough games coming. Um, you can rationalize. you got to give them 10 games before you lose your shit. But uh, we're losing our shit right now. And, like, it's on them. It's on the director of football and Arteta. Um, it was going to be a tough window, but you got to be ready. They've been very unlucky, though. But here we are. Yeah, I, I think the thing that's tough, right, is the one thing I want to see to start to feel better about where we're going and what Arteta's doing is the attack firing. And our yeah. next two games, forget how scary they are. They're against two of the meanest defenses in the league where you don't expect us to create much. But it's like, all right, we struggled to break down low blocks last season. So what do we start this season with? A high press, high line team. All right, that might play into our play out from the back strategy. And that didn't really work. So we're sort of scratching around. Clive, you want to finish it off on this? I mean, the, the dark clouds are gathering. Right. Yep, yep. And and I I feel for Arteta in that without a point from that first fixture, the next two don't look very forgiving. The one thing that might help him is we play Chelsea at home, then City away. If those were reversed and we had zero points from Brentford and City and then it was Chelsea at home and that didn't go well, that could have been even worse. Maybe there'll be a little more patience. But I I'm I'm nervous that fans being back can be both a blessing and a curse. Uh, we're going to let Paul go here and then Clive will have his final say and we'll go away. I think we're on our uh, third hour of this one. Woo-hoo. Paul's on Twitter, pause my pants. Thanks, pause. Yep. All right. Uh, actually, Paul, just leave uh, leave your browser open if you don't mind. Ah, okay. Yep. Thank you. All right, Clive? Yeah, I think um, I think the game on the weekend is going to be so interesting. And I do think we've seen the power of the home fan because I think there's been a lot more home wins over the weekend. And I think hopefully we're going to get some of that. But this is my little thought, right? I think as a club, I'm I'm stepping back and I feel that particularly when we had those people out the weekend, we look a bit faceless. We lack something, we lack a face to the club. So when Arteta came in, I thought, Crikey, why do you want to come here? We're, we're a shit show. Why do you want this job? And so I was very sympathetic to him, picking up this squad, not the greatest squad in the world. What can you do with it? Then we had COVID, no fans, no money, no sales. I was always sympathetic to that first job and all the challenges that he had. But I thought, pre-season, let's see what we got. Try to wait till September the 1st and then judge then judge the club from that moment onwards. And a lot can change in two weeks. <clears throat> but I'm coming away thinking, this club lacks a talisman. And where is that going to happen? Is it going to be in the team? Are we going to purchase maybe a new forward? Well, we don't know because no one's going to leave. We're not going to purchase a talisman in defence because we've already bought a player. We're not going to do one in centre midfield because we're going to we just retained a player. This club needs something to believe in, right? This is what people need, and is that somebody on the bench? And I, I mean this because I think we're missing a massive cog that makes us look smaller than we are. It makes us look vulnerable. It really does, and. We need to lift the level of the club. And that even comes with good recruitment over a period of time. Are we prepared to wait? Am I jumping? 
by saying we need a talent, we need a big buy or a big manager. Well, Spurs tried to do that. It didn't really work out for them with Mourinho, did it? Get a talent manager in. But I do think there's a step for us to make. And it needs to happen either on the pitch with a, with a purchase or we're going to start to question what's happening off the pitch even more than we already do. You know, because at the moment, the badge is getting smaller. It's getting smaller and we look more and more disorganised. And I know it's only one game. I know there were reasons for it. There's half a team missing. Five players that would normally start this game didn't were not available. And that's a completely different ball game. But it's something that's in my mind and it may grow over the next two next month, depending on how we end up squad wise in, in the market. Yeah, well said. And and I would just say this. We are so in it. We are so obsessed with Arsenal, so analytical about Arsenal, so in the middle of this thing that sometimes I think we are zoomed so far in that we don't see the obvious, that we're trying to figure out, you know, oh, should we be using this right back or that right back? Or maybe if, if you know, Martinelli moves here or Pepe slides there. And I think if you zoom out, when clubs are really a mess and we see them from the outside, I think it's a lot more obvious. And I wonder if we were if we were able to like stop being Arsenal fans for 10 minutes and glance at Arsenal, would we be like, whoa, that looks bad. I mean, Lacazette and Aubameyang won't be here for the next few weeks, illness or whatever it is. They're, they're not able to help. The, the window has to come to some kind of positive resolution. We're re-signing guys that haven't been good enough in the past. You know, new signings coming in are going to need time to adapt, but they got to hit the ground running, and it looks it looks scary. I think storm clouds are gathering. It is two tough fixtures. Now, look, can we can we beat both of those teams? We could. What if we're on six points going into the international break? A lot of this will feel like insanity, and that's the beauty of football. The beauty of football is the results can change everything. They need to happen now. We need them. We need something to lift the club, both in the window and on the pitch. And I, the good thing about being a fan is hope springs eternal. Maybe it'll come in the form of a win over Chelsea at the Emirates with the whole crowd behind the team. Tim will be there, and you can find him on Twitter at Snowberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure, as always. Clive will be there, and you can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name is Elliot Smith. Thanks for sticking through this long edition of the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. We've got rewatches, Premier League roundups, analytics pods, all over on the Patreon side, uh, as well as a regular podcast uh, later on this week. So we just love you for being here. We're going through it together, and if you disagree with anything we said, you know, that's okay. Come tell us about it. Maybe we'll say something you agree with next time. But either way, we love you. We will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Chelsea nil. happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. 
The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com